You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. TJ, I'm sorry you got mauled. <laughs> Life with a puppy. Jeez. It's, yeah, puppy brain, adult strength. Not fun. Oh, I'm sorry. It happens. The allergy season here is kicking up super hard. Oh, yeah. And they just cut down all our trees, so everything has been kicked up. Oh, why'd they cut all the trees down? Um, People, stop cutting down trees. Well, they, they pruned useful. them. They didn't cut all, like, they didn't cut the trees off. They pruned all the branches off. Oh, okay. And so everything has been kicked up into the air, and so I forgive me if I have, like, a little bit of a sniffle or a coughle. Yeah, I'm kind of scratchy myself. <laughs> today <laughs> a little more husky than normal yeah so we kind of hinted at this uh during the last episode but we're starting a little special series and you're going to get four episodes this month don't get used to it no <laughs> but, <laughs> but february 3rd was the anniversary of what is called the day the music died and that is when richie valens the Big Bopper, and Buddy Holly died in a plane crash. And so the next three episodes, we're going to be focusing on those guys and the events around their life. So that's the special series that we're doing right now. And today we're going to be focusing on the youngest of the group, Richie Valens. I want to say up front, this is probably going to be a shorter episode because Richie Valens was only 17. Right. He was really young. This crash actually happened very near to my hometown in Minnesota. Like, the sur- I think I want to say they were playing like the surf ballroom or something like that or near there. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll but, get there. Yeah. So that like every year they have like a big in our in our bar anyways, in our teeny tiny town, they have a uh, they have a big like party, like a they throw us a little memorial show for it. Mm-hmm. Just at the just at the local bar, you know. I love local stuff like that. But uh, let's talk about Richie. So okay. Richard Stephen Valenzuela was professionally known as Richie Valens. The Joseph Stephen Valenzuela family lived in the San Fernando Valley, which is north of Los Angeles. Steve was a tree surgeon by trade, which I'm not sure what a tree surgeon is. So it's a guy that knows trees, like... They diagnose that like they know and diagnose like diseases and do trimming and stuff like that. And like, okay, they they treat trees. Excellent. We've, <laughs> we've had one come to our house before when our uh, olive tree was going down. <laughs> That's one of those those uh, what do you call it? The, the the like sandwich artists. Yeah. I thought it was like a fancy name for like a landscaper. No, a tree surgeon is an actual thing. Okay. They diagnose and treat diseases in trees. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also dabbled in mining operations, and he was a horse trainer. Uh, his youngest son, Richard Stephen, was born on May 13th, 1941, at 12.56 a.m., so close to being May 14th, in County Osteopathic Hospital. That They could have named that something easier. 
<laughs> At the time, Steve and his wife, Connie, were working in a munitions plant in Saugus, which is just north of the San Fernando Valley. Richard's mother, Conception Connie Valenzuela had already had a son from a previous marriage named Robert Morales, who was four years old at the time of Richie's birth. For the first few years, the family lived a fairly steady life at uh, 1337 Cornell Street in San Fernando. In 1944, the parents divorced, which was like, at the time, that's that's weird, right? 44 to have a divorce? Why? It Like, it wasn't, like, a thing back then. Well, no, divorce wasn't really back then, but, I mean, it did happen. I know. It's kind of like a trailblazer thing, because not a lot of people got divorced back then. Mm-mm. So the parents divorced, and Stephen moved and bought a house on Fillmore Street in the nearby Pacoima, while Connie moved into a house in Fillmore with her older son, Robert, and her two young daughters, Connie and Irma. Because the house was small, Richie was shuffled off to live with various aunts and uncles in various towns in the upper Los Angeles area. So he's a hometown boy. Yeah. He's a local guy. Yeah. Richie spent a great deal of time with his aunt Ernestine and uncle Lilo Reyes when he returned to Pacoima. As a child, Richie faced many prejudices, which were a part of the Hispanic life throughout Southern California. However, this area was home to many family groups, Asians, African-Americans, as and white, as well as Hispanic. So, I mean, like, yeah, I think it's like 1944, 1945. And so, yeah, the civil rights movement hasn't even happened yet. So you have to imagine the kind of prejudice this kid has to face. Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel like it's really not that much different at this point. But right, right now, no. Like, we don't get political on the show, but mm, things really changed. I don't know. Not really. So Richie was an average student for whom music was a guiding force. Influenced by Mexican folk songs and popular songs sung by his relatives, his true love was singing the singing cowboy of the Saturday matinee movies. He also listened to country played on the radio. With only an average singing voice, relatives began to teach him to play the guitar at age 11. Richie was among the first generations of rock and rollers to have his path inscribed by the music itself, rather than its roots and tributaries. Although he had learned Spanish songs on the second-hand Sears guitar that he had refurbished in a woodshop in Pacoima, as a consequence, he got his nickname, Little Richie, from the influences of Little Richard. His singing style from Fats Domino and Buddy Holly, which would be ironic. Rock and roll is just starting. It's just in its infancy. So you have, like, kind of the surf rock, which we talked about with the Beach Boys and Bobby Fuller and things like that. And something from Bobby Fuller is going to hit in this episode. Mm. We have the third piece. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. Getting ahead of ourselves. In a grainy dream sequence that reoccurs throughout the movie La Bamba, two droning planes fly fly over a schoolyard where teenagers are playing basketball in slow motion. Suddenly, the planes collide, exploding and showering the wreckage onto a playground. The sequence dramatizes an event that occurred in 1957 at Pacoima Junior High School claiming the lives of three students and five crew members and causing dozens of injuries. One of those students who developed an intense fear of flying after the accident was Richie Valens. Irony, irony, irony. Oh, just wait. For Richie, the very thought of flying was terrifying. Donna Fox, the subject of Richie Valens' hit song Donna, recalled he would have nightmares about flying. He just had a horrible fear of small planes and planes in general. He indicated that he would never fly. He would just never fly. So this horrible fear began on January 31st, 1957. The day was the funeral of Richie's grandfather. He had missed school that day to attend the funeral service. Shortly after the family returned to the home, a deafening explosion shook the earth. When Richie and his older brother Bob looked into the heavens, they saw a plane plummeting from the sky, 
totally engulfed in flames. Quickly, the family members jumped into a car and followed in the general direction of the now crimson sky. Almost like children searching for a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, the family found the wreckage of the doomed aircraft. (sighs) Ironically, the crash site was the playground of Richie's school, the Pacoima Junior High School. The school ground resembled a battlefield with pieces of contorted burning metal intermixed with playground equipment. The scene created a ghastly paradox of childhood innocence and untimely death. Horribly, three students were killed and nine others injured. One of the students that were killed was Richie's best friend. Every day, Richie would sit on the same playgrounds playing his guitar while his fellow students would gather around him. He was convinced that if he had not attended his grandfather's funeral, he would have been one of the victims lying on that pockmarked school ground. Gotta tell you, that story shook me up. There's literally nothing scares me more than flying. As in, like, I have to be sedated to get on an airplane. I, I can't. I can't do it. And you will, I don't care if I become the biggest star in the world. There is no way I would have my own private jet. And there's no way I'd get into a helicopter. I don't, I don't know. I don't have those fears. I, I've, I've flown so much in my life that, like, it's just part of the shtick. I don't know. Yeah, I don't have the I don't have those fears at all. My sister's gotten really afraid and my stepdad has is terrified. But my stepdad works on planes, so I kinda understand a little bit like he knows <laughs> the things like the little thing that could be off, you know, that could take the whole thing down. So I understand kind of from his end, but like I don't know. It never has it's never really freaked me out. It's never bothered me at all. Half the time I'm asleep before we even leave. As far as like the whole flying thing goes, I've been flying since I was like 10 and I've never had a, a good experience flying because I see, okay, number one, I watched the Twilight Zone. There's an episode called 22. I've seen Final Destination. I've seen Air Force One. I've seen The Dark Knight Rises. Terrible things happen on airplanes and I, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, another Twilight Zone episode and... For me, it's just like being escorted into a a can that has absolutely no reason to be airborne, and you can't see in front of you, you can't see behind you, you can only see out, and what you see is just like clouds and other planes, and it's it's a nightmare for me. I think it's so relaxing. I love being in the window seats and being able to look out at the clouds and and the water or earth below me and... It's so relaxing to me. <laughs> nope. I have I to have flying. two Xanax and my husband has to throw them. We, we actually even get pre-boarding, like special pre-boarding. Because if, if I'm not unconscious by the time the plane takes off, I have a panic attack. So I I totally vibe with Richie on this. He appeared in variety programs and played the guitar for his schoolmates at lunch break. As a part of a shop project when he was 13, he actually made an electric guitar out of scrap lumber and used electric parts. So, like, 13, he's already building his guitars. How crazy is that? That's awesome. Yeah. By the time he entered San Fernando High School, he was playing the guitar at school assemblies and after-school parties, learning a right-handed version of the guitar despite the fact that he was left-handed, which I can only imagine that's not easy. I don't know. In his junior year, he joined the Silhouettes, a band named after the song by the Rays. And I think I know that song. No, my mom, 
would have me believe that there was no music made after 1981. So that was all I listened to. Yeah. So, yeah. So they were the only rock and roll band in the area, which is crazy to think that Pacoima in 1957, 58, this is like the only band in the area. And so they actually became local stars. At a January 1958 rent party held at an American Legion Hall, the band was tapped by part-time talent scout working for Bob Keane. There he is again, the owner of Keane Records. After hearing the tape, Keane decided that he wanted to hear more. In May 1958, Richie actually went to Los Angeles to audition for Bob Keane. At that time, Keane's company was in the middle of a string of hits with Sam Cooke and was looking for talent for his new label, Delphi Records. The audition went well enough that Keane set up a formal session. Richie played an instrumental number on his guitar, and Keane liked it well enough that he actually recorded it as is and asked Richie to make up some lyrics as he went along. So that's neat. Like Not yeah. even out of high school yet, and you're working with someone who's doing things like producing Bobby Fuller and Sam Cooke. So, I mean, and Sam Cooke at this time was hot. Yeah. Keane soon signed Valenzuela to Delphi Records, but not before changing his name to Valens. I knew if he put out a record and called him Valenzuela, they wouldn't even listen to it. They would have just thrown it in the trash can. And that was a quote by Bob Keane. The single Come On, Let's Go was released locally in the summer of 1958, and his name was shortened. And so the song actually received a lot of attention in Los Angeles immediately, and soon it spread throughout the Southwest. In August, Delphi released the record nationally, and it eventually sold half a million copies. Do you Dang. know? Do you know? Come on, let's go. I think so. Yeah. Come on, let's go, let's go, little darling. Yeah. Yep. That's it. Uh, in December 1958, Richie paid a visit to his alma mater, Pocoima Junior High School, in the San Fernando Valley of Southern California. Not much older than the assembled students. He had actually turned 17 previously on May 13th. He performed an assortment of his and other songs, including his latest single, the double-sided Donna and La Bamba, which would climb into the top five by the following February. I do like La Bamba. And then, do you know, everybody loves La Bamba. La Bamba. It's so much fun. La Bamba. It's so fun. I'm dancing on the couch. You can't see it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm bouncing and dancing. So, I mean, that's a, that's a great double side combo because Donna was a ballad and La Bamba was like the party song. And uh, in October, after a short tour, Valens began another recording session. Donna, the next round, was a ballad that he had written and the flip side was La Bamba. So, like, he went recorded that and that would make the top five. And funny enough, what I found was La Bamba was actually a reworking of a traditional Mexican folk wedding song of the same name. Oh, cool. And depending on the artist, from what I understand, depending on the artist, they switch around the lyrics. So it can mean a lot of things. So there's not one clear translation of what La Bamba is. That's interesting. Valen's breakout hit Donna reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart the following year, becoming Valen's second highest charting single. Most surprising was the success of the single's B-side, which was La Bamba. Though its lyrics were in Spanish, the Anglo audience seemed to look past it or didn't care, says author Tom Waldman. La Bamba climbed to number three in the Hot 100's Billboard charts. 
Valens' time was now filled with appearances and recording sessions. In December, Richie appeared at his high school for an assembly in the gym with Keen taping. At this time, Valens filmed a cameo for Go Johnny Go, which was a teen movie. Because, you know, at the time, those were like, like the teen surfer, teen beach movies were like... Yeah, big yeah, deal. Yeah, big deal. So this is in that same vein. I, I remember watching them with my grandma. <laughs> really? Yeah, like the... Well, I think I told you that, the Annette, Frankie and Annette movies and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And they were super campy, but like they were targeted for... And the Elvis movies and yeah. Well, the Elvis movies were like a little bit more of an older audience. Sure, yeah. But yeah. Like Beach Blanket Bingo and all that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Annette Funicello. I I feel like we would do an episode on her because she was a Mouseketeer and they were required to sing. We could. I mean, we should. Yeah. He actually appeared on the Dick Clark show on December 27th, and that was in 1958. Live from New York City from 7.30 to 8 p.m. I don't know why that was important to keep in there, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) Also on that show were Jackie Wilson, The Crests, Jimmy Clayton, and The Diamonds. I know Jackie Wilson. I love Jackie Wilson. Love me some Jackie Wilson. You know Jackie Wilson. Okay. Your love is lifting me higher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's Jackie Wilson. Yeah. At that time, Richie and the others were also appearing on the Low State Theater as a part of Alan Freed's, and we will be doing an episode on him because he is one of the biggest DJs. Oh, yeah. It's music-related. So, yes. As the part of Alan Freed's 10-day holiday show. After their performances on the Dick Clark Show at the Low Theater, Richie and the other performers traveled a few city blocks within New York City's Times Square for their nightly review at the Lowe's State Theater. So, like, perform out the door, get to the next venue. Perform out the door, get to the next venue. This kid is working it. Right. Well, you kind of got to when you're just starting your career. Yeah. So there was a book, and from what I read, this book was, the the word that kept getting thrown out was kind of sophomoric and well-intentioned, but not the word good. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm going to read you kind of like a part from that. Because it devoted, this this book was called Land of a Thousand Dances, which is a song. Okay. Na, 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 oh, yeah. na, 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's Land of a Thousand. Pretty sure. That's really? One. That's Land of a Thousand Dances? Mm-hmm. All right. Fair enough. You're in my hood now with this music. Yep. Well, like I say, I know the songs if I hear them, but I don't really, like... I don't go out of my way to find them on a regular basis, so I have no clue. Oh, these are things that have just been burned into my head after years and years and years of, you know, 17 years of my mother just being like, this is the music you're going to listen to, and you will like it. See, there you go. And you know what? I'm glad she did, because... Oh, there's a lot of great music. There's so much. From, you know, like I say, it's not that I don't enjoy it, I just don't go out of my way to find it. Yeah, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who will tell you that the saddest song in music history is actually Patches by Clarence Carter. Because I would argue with you on that. Patches by Clarence Carter is the saddest song in the world. Fight me, because that was just the first time I heard that song. I openly wept, and then my mom saw me crying, and she started crying, and I saw her crying, so I cried harder. He stopped (laughs) loving her today. Fight me. Silent World, Donna Lewis. Fight me. (laughs) When you're gone, cranberries, fight me. (laughs) 
So this book was called Land of a Thousand Dances, and it devoted a detailed chapter to Valens as someone partial to Pacoima. And this is the, the author of this um, article speaking, and I could not find this person's name because it just said staff. So, <laughs> so Mr. Staff person, thank you. So I'm going to read this as, uh, as someone partial to Pomona, which have you, have you been to Pomona? Fairgrounds. Yeah, I was just there like two weekends ago for BlushCon. It's not bad. Yeah. They also have a racetrack where they do like I mean, Formula One racing. Yeah, I've only really been to the fairgrounds for like festivals and fairs. Yeah. But it's not bad. Yeah. Big parking. Yeah. Big parking lot. I like that. I like big parking lots. And I cannot <laughs> lie. <laughs> Uh, I was fascinated to see passing mentions that Valens had performed at the L.A. County Fair and at the Rainbow Gardens, both in Pomona. And here was a, here's what I was able to find. First came through the county fair in September 1958. This concert took place in Building 10. The hut-like structure is now used for children-friendly exhibits and activities at fair time. Unsolicited advice from fair officials. Think about commemorating Valens' appearance at the fairgrounds in some way. That was a note from the author. So, but I fully agree. You should commemorate something, but I guess not because that's a lot of people that they'd end up commemorating. Yep. It's like just list off every rock star, <laughs> but maybe like building 10 because don't they have on the studios like the, the one of the Warner Brothers studios is dedicated to Lucille Ball. They have a few. Yeah. Like the Big Bang Theory stage now. That show's done with. I know, but they still commemorated it by naming the building after it in the 1950s rock concerts largely took a cavalcade of stars approach with several acts performing two or three of their hits because few performers had their own musicians usually the same band would back them all and we actually see that in like the fairground circuit and if you go back and watch that thing you do they have like the galaxy of stars doing the fairground circuit and so they had a bunch of different acts right. performing from, like, one record label. Okay. You get more bang for your buck back then. Yeah. Bruce Johnson was part of that support at an equally young age of 16. Johnson, who had been members of the Beach Boys since 1965, shared his recollections via an email to the fair in 2015. Johnson said that he had played piano behind Valens several times in the summer of 1958 and then in early September at the fair. The headliners, Johnson said, were the Kingston Trio, Billy Vaughn, the Teddy Bears, Johnny <laughs> Johnny Cash, Jan and Arnie, which is actually pre-Dan and Gene. And those guys were kind of the second Beach Boys. So Jan and Dean, like if you listen, if you don't know a catalog well enough, I could play you a Jan and Dean song and you might not be able to tell the difference between them and the Beach Boys. Johnny Burnett and the up-and-coming Richie Valens. Valens performed two songs, Come On, Let's Go, and Framed. The tickets for the show were 98 cents, and that was the sponsoring radio station's dial position. KFWBAM Color Radio Channel 98, Johnson said. This is a man who must have kept meticulous notes, and posterity is the better for it. Now let's skip ahead a couple weeks, and Valens' last Pomona concert took place at Rainbow Gardens, a former Big Ben era dance hall usually used for mostly Latin concerts and rock shows. The date hasn't surfaced, but as he spent the holidays in New York, it's likely it's likely early December 1958 or early January 1959. Vicki G. Tomlinson was there. 
She was 13 years old, and the Pomona girl attended the concert along with her older sister and best friend, specifically to see Valens. As with the fair concert, this one was actually sponsored by KFEW again. Pre-autographed copies of Valens' single, Donna, on one side and La Bamba or the other were actually given out at the door. That's cool. Could you imagine how much that would be worth today? A lot. Jeez. More than 98 cents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell me where you can like get in for less than a dollar and they give you a record. Nowhere. <laughs> well, wait, no. Some of the shows that we do at like Joe's or something. <laughs> Is Joe's no cover? Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time. Every once in a while, if there's like a bigger band or name or something, then they'll have a cover. But most of the time it's no cover. And then... A lot of bands, if you put a tip in the bucket, then they'll give you a CD for free. Neat. (laughs) Yeah. So at this event, Chris Darrow was there too, and we actually looked him up, and he was with the... Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Kaleidoscope. So he was actually, he would later on become a professional musician, and at the time, he was a Claremont boy, and he was 15, and he had developed an affinity for the rock guitar and Latin music from living in the mixed race is it Arbol Verde neighborhood? Arbol, A-R-B-O-L? I guess. He persuaded his protective parents to let him see the concert with his best friend, Roger Palos. Both of them were rabid Valens devotees, which is really cool because at this point, Richie's only like a year older than he is and they're obsessed with him and I love that. It was kind of a pilgrimage, Daryl recalled in a written reminiscence. That's not my words. That was a copy and paste. You could clearly tell that. I was going to say, what? (laughs) (laughs) Just say recalled, period. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, reminiscence is not exactly a Lindley kind of word. I'd be like, member? Member? The performers that night were backed by a house band, probably the Mixtures. The opening act, Jan and Arnie, which was like I was telling you about Jan and Dean. The set ended after one song due to tensions with the band. Darrow said. Valens, the headliner, soon took the stage. Darrow got closer, eager to take it all in. So he was a pretty big guy and loomed on stage with graceful power, Darrow said. And if you've ever seen a picture of Richie Valens, he does not look his age. No, he looks much older. Yeah. And that's not... He doesn't look 17. He looks he does, like he, an he adult. Doesn't, he doesn't look bad either. Like no. He's, he's got a very, very sweet smile. It's just he was a big strapping dude. Yeah, he looks like an adult. He does not look like a 17-year-old. Yeah. I mean, I think they just aged differently back then. Maybe. There was a tenderness and a sweetness about him even when he rocked. The houseman knew his stuff and did a great job on the song. He did La Bamba and Donna and even played my favorite, High Tone. On the Facebook page, growing up in Pomona in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Sylvia Guerrero Padilla wrote, I saw Richie Valens having a smoke break. Also, 17 and smoking. 16 and smoking? Don't smoke, kids. He was having a smoke break outside the Rainbow Gardens, and when I was 12 years old, I lived across the street from there. Darrow remembered or thought that Valens left right after the show, but G reported that later all the stars were giving out autographs in the lobby, and I got Richie to autograph the other side of the record. How sweet is that? Nice. If we can cruise over to the other side of Kellogg Hill for a moment, Valens actually performed January 17th at West Covina High School. I know where that is. Shortly after that came the ill-fated winter dance party tour in the Midwest. With Valens and the rest traveling by bus through sub-zero temperatures, the drummer of the band was actually hospitalized with frostbite. That's how cold it was. No, I'm out. It's cold. That's why I've... Well, I mean, it says right there, sub-zero temperatures. I mean, it's 
North, it's northern Midwest in the winter. Like, what do you expect? I'm out. Cold. I'm out. Cold. You it's know. cold right now. It's like 63. It's and 70 I'm, degrees outside. 70 to 80 cold. degrees. It's not cold. Look, look at my socks, dude. They're fuzzy socks because I'm freezing right now. Hang on a second. Because <laughs> I was just out there. It is not cold. I don't even have a jacket on today. It's 75 degrees. It is not cold. I can't hear you over the chattering of my teeth. Uh-huh. <sighs> So taking from that, Valens, which we've talked about, had a fear of airplanes, actually angled to travel with Holly. And I'm going to get into more of this later, but this is kind of wrapping up the the quote from this guy. Once people found out about the plane crash, I think everyone in school was very somber for a while, said Tomlinson. She said that she was actually more shaken by Holly's death. Daryl was at school when he got the news. I was crushed and went off by myself and cried like a baby. It was the first time I remember crying for someone who had died. Richie Valens and Buddy Holly were like gods to me at the time and could do no wrong. It was one of the great losses in rock and roll history. By the end of 1958, Valens had quit high school in order to focus on his career, which had skyrocketed after his second single, Donna, climbed to number two. Also enjoying a good amount of popularity was the single's innovative flip side, La Bamba. La Bamba featured some fierce guitar work as well as the thick sound of the Dan Electro bass, which gave the instrument more electric presence than it had previously enjoyed on any other rock and roll disc. Valens was subsequently hailed as one of rock and roll's teen idols, and he hit the road in early 1959 along with Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, Dion, the Belmonts, and Frankie Sardo. Frankie Sardo sounds like a mob name, doesn't it? It really does. He actually joined this tour on January 23rd, and this was called the Winter Dance Party, which was the tour of the Upper Midwest. Uh, Valen Singles, Donna, and La Bamba were actually moving through the top 10, and it actually made him the most popular artist on the tour at the moment, which is crazy when you think, like, there's Buddy Holly, there's the Big Bopper, there's Dion, there's the Belmonts, there's Frankie, like, but this 17-year-old kid was, like, the hero of the hour. Right. Well, because he's... He's the new thing. His career is hot. You know, he's, he only had a career for like a year. Nope. No, he didn't. Not even. Nope. We're going to get to that. Okay. I actually give the exact amount of time that he was a star. Build as the Winter Dance Party, the tour originally was scheduled to hit 24 Midwestern cities over the course of three weeks. That is so much. Yep. That is... What, how many how many shows? 24 Midwestern cities. So it's every single day for three weeks. No, more than that. I think it's more than that? No, like 12. Wait, what's seven times three? <laughs> 21. Yeah, so that's more than a show a day. Ridiculous. So that's 24 literally... cities in three weeks. That's seven times three is 21. That is ridiculous. I don't know if our math so is may- correct, but it doesn't matter because three weeks and 24... Three weeks in 24 Midwestern cities. Yeah, that's... Jeez. Uh... I feel like that's almost criminal. <laughs> Are we sure it's only three weeks? That doesn't seem right. Yeah, over the course of three weeks. Yikes. Okay. The, the musicians all shared a single bus whose heater broke down several days into the tour, worsening the long drives between each shows. By the time the winter dance party rolled into Clear Lake, Iowa on February 2nd, Buddy Holly had actually grown tired of the chilly conditions and decided to take a plane in order to fly over to the show's next stop. And I think another like driving force was he didn't have any clean clothes, or one of the performers didn't have any clean clothes and they actually wanted to do laundry before the next show. So they, they thought that that would be the easiest thing, was just to grab a flight and just pop over to the next stop. Yeah, so Clear Lake, Iowa, is 
I mean, it's about 68 miles south of Brownsdale and Austin area where I'm from in Minnesota. But they, the, um, sorry, the venue there is currently called the Surf Ballroom. I don't know if it was called that back then. I'm not sure. It was. Okay. But then they do have, um, since that was their last show, they actually have a dedication wall there to these three performers. Have you ever been there? Yeah. I saw... (laughs) You're going to laugh at me. I went to a Los Lonely Boys concert there. (laughs) And it was great. They're great performers. Wait, they had... They did Heaven, right? Yeah, and then so much more. That was such a good opening guitar riff to a song. Like, it's almost immediately recognizable. It's not even my favorite song of theirs. I really, I'm I actually, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of those Lonely Boys. I enjoy their stuff quite a bit. They call themselves the Texicans. I like them. <laughs> I like them. I think they're a great band. Yeah, just, they're great. That's the only real song I know by them. Like, could pick it out, but yeah. I'll play you a different one. It's really killer. Uh, so it was on February 2nd, 1959, that the Winter Dance Party arrived in Clear Lake, Iowa to play a dance at the Surf Ballroom. So the Surf Ballroom, um, <clears throat> it's actually, it's kind of an interesting venue because it's it seems more like a high school gym than like a normal concert hall, like the Staples Center or like a stadium type of a concert hall it's it's kind of like they're playing the school gym and there's a big stage and then a big floor like oh so there's like a floor like it's standing room only are there like seats on the side i think they put seats out but it wasn't like but it wasn't like normal auditorium style seating it was just kind of there i can't remember if there was seats or not when i went but it's just a big floor it's it's like a high school auditorium so it makes sense though because if this is a dance party then yeah you would have it the big open floor big open floor yeah yeah the heater on the converted bus that he had been traveling in hadn't been working properly for days while the outside temperature was nearly zero on the way to clear lake the bus actually broke down completely buddy holly who was unhappy with the travel accommodations arranged to fly to the next stop on a leased airplane so these days like the ones that we're living in now the tour buses have super strict operation regulations And so they barely break down, but that wasn't the case in the 50s. So Holly leased a four-seat Beechcraft Bonanza for himself and the band members, Waylon Jennings and Tommy Alsup. And the Big Bopper and Valens actually talked Jennings and Alsups out of their seats. The singers finished up the performance at the Surf Ballroom. They tried to escape the freezing cold bus for the trip for their next gig in Moorhead, Minnesota. Yeah, actually, he had hired the plane to take him to Fargo. Yeah, and then they would just like trek over to yeah. the next town because it's a there's a little airport in Fargo and it's yeah it's not far into Moorhead it's like ten minutes yeah so this is where we get into the crazy part they were actually the the two extra seats on the flight were originally intended for members of Holly's band Tommy Alsop and Wailing Jennings which I previously stated Richie won his seat in a coin toss. And the big bopper convinced Jennings to let him have a seat on the plane because he wasn't feeling well. But musician Tommy Alsop doesn't dwell on the coin flip that kept him from taking a plane 20 years ago. And this is when this article was written. It was that fatal flight that killed rock and roll stars Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and JP, the big bopper, Richardson. 
And we're going to talk about the Big Bopper next week, yes? The toss is recounted in the movie La Bamba, which I really, really, really wanted to get to see before we did this episode, but I ran out of time. But I do own it and the Buddy Holly story, so I'll be watching a double feature eventually. But Luba Diamond Phillips stars as Richie Valens, which I do not think is bad casting at all. Not at all. Lou Diamond Phillips is a gem. I love him. Literally. I love his name. <laughs> Lou Diamond Phillips. Uh, Alsop mentioned in the movie where the musicians flip a coin to see who would ride on the plane and who would take the tour bus. We flipped a coin backstage. Alsop said, I put my bag in the station wagon to go to the airport. I went back to the club to see if the instruments were loaded on the bus. Richie was signing autographs, and that's when we flipped the coin. So apparently... In the film, and I have watched this particular scene, in the, the film, they depict it as being next to the airplane, and they flip the coin, but this actually took place somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So, someone's texting me. Could it be my pod partner who's sitting next to me? <laughs> I'm sending you pictures. <sighs> so, yeah. So, apparently, it's not as depicted in the movie, but of course, movie makers take liberties in filmmaking, and that would make it more dramatic if they were standing next to the plane as opposed to just being in the in the venue. A lot of people were standing there, I recalled. I flipped, he called heads. He got his stuff off the bus and put it in the station wagon. The bus went on to Fargo, North Dakota, while Valens, Holly, and the Big Bopper took the small plane to get there quickly and comfortably. The three rockers died with 21-year-old pilot Roger Peterson when the plane crashed in the Iowa countryside. I thought a lot more about it recently since the movie came out, the 55-year-old Alsop said. I put it out of my mind. Occasionally when I get on a plane, I think about it, but I have no fear of flying. I'm not crazy about small planes, though. If I know the pilot, it's okay. But if but I don't go renting a plane just to go up. When it's your time to go, you're going to go. Alsop was playing guitar in Holly's band when he met Valens during the ill-fated tour. We got to be pretty good buddies on tour, Alsop said in a telephone interview from his Dallas home. We talked a lot. He talked about his mother a lot. And he had gotten word that his record sold a million, and he was really excited about that. He was a pleasure to work with, and he was a good guitar player. He played his own lead on La Bamba. He was young, and he was a good singer, and he could prove that he could write. He proved that he could write a hit song. He was good enough as an entertainer to have carried the load. He had everything going his way. Alsop was a former session musician in Nashville. Alsop, a former session musician in Nashville, said the song La Bamba has remained popular because of its simplicity. People are listening closely, he said. They want to hear the song lyrics. They want to hear the way it was 30 years ago. This made Buddy popular because you could hear every word in his song. If you were a country music fan or rock and roll fan, you could listen to his song and they would have appealed to everybody. The trend is coming around the 1950s music. People are turning off the heavy metal. Los Lobos recorded the title song for the movie and it quickly shot to number one, doing better than Valen's original recording, which peaked on number two, on the Billboard charts one month one month after the crash. And uh, I saw the pop-up video for this song from Los Lobos. And it's funny because I don't think anyone invited Lou Diamond Phillip to the actual music shoot, but he showed up anyway. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so he like stuck around and I guess it was an all-night shoot. And so the very last shot of the music video is like the band just kind of playing like the last parts of the song. And Lou Diamond Phillips is just like banging away on the side of a box. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but I do like the music video for the, the Los Lobos. It's a good it's a good version of the song. 
Another entertainer who was left off the plane was country music star Waylon Jennings, who was playing in Holly's band, The Crickets. Alsop, who was playing in bands in the Dallas area, said that he learned about the crash when the bus arrived in Fargo, North Dakota, the day after leaving Iowa. I walked in to check into the motel rooms. There was a TV there by the check-in counter, and they had a big picture of the big bopper on the screen, and the clerk said that those guys were killed in a plane crash. The road manager walked in, and that's how we found out. We walked back to the bus, and we told everybody on the bus. Dion and the Belmonts were there, Waylon and some others. I was low. I went outside. I went inside and called my mom and asked her if she had the TV on, and she said no. I told her. They had me listed on the plane at first. Oh, my God. See, that was what I was talking about. Like, you can't always trust the manifest. Right. Like, you, you can't. Early reports are the worst reports. Right. We saw that with Kobe. We played that night. You know, the show must go on. I can't, I can't imagine. Can you even imagine having to go on after that? Nope. Especially since half the show is gone. Yeah. Well, it's not just half the show is gone. Four people lost their lives and they were your friends. Yeah. Well, that too. <laughs> yeah. Alsop doesn't think about being a footnote in music history. I don't dwell on it much, he says. I'm glad I was there. The timing was important and I was there at the right time. But I've done other things that I'm equally proud of, like some of the Bob Wills records. The flight was scheduled to depart the Mason City Airport at 12.30 a.m. The pilot was young and only 21 years old, but had four years of experience. Unfortunately, he was unaware of a weather advisory that had been issued before the plane took it. That should be one of your main things. That should be a thing yeah. that you look up. Always. <sighs> the plane crashed The plane crashed about five miles from where it took off. News of the crash shocked the country. Richie was only 17 when he died. Even in his short career, Richie recorded numerous hits that would leave an indelible mark on the music industry for years to come. In 1971, Don McLean penned the song American Pie, which immortalizes the crash as The Day the Music Died. On February 3rd, 1959, Mama said, God needed him more than we did. That is so sad. Three great talents were lost that day. The music lives on. The family remembers and tells their stories. Valens was three months shy of his 18th birthday when he was killed. His career was a mere eight months long. Jeez. Think about that. Eight months. That's, that would suck. It takes longer to have a baby. Yeah. Eight months. Yeah. And he accomplished all of this within eight months. And I will talk more about his accomplishments in just a bit. But, like, that was the very definition of meteoric. This gets me for some reason. This, like, hurts me. I don't blame you. Like, it just, it sucks. Like, he just started. Yeah, he could, imagine what he could have done. And he was so young. He was just a baby. Jeez. I mean, and he was just taken before he had this opportunity to do so much more. It's so... For Mexican-Americans, Valen's death was a lost opportunity on the road to recognition of their contributions to the American culture. But a handful of Mexican-American bands had its national hits in a half a dozen years that followed. And like Valen's, they used their name to mask their identities. The premieres came from the Barrios of East Los Angeles. A cannibal and the Headhunters, too, lived in the barrio and picked up the R&B harmonies from their African-American neighbors. The Question Marks and the Mysterians had a number one hit with 96 Tears, sung by Rudy Martinez, the son of a migrant field worker in Michigan. Sam the Sham of Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs was actually Domingo Sanamundo of Dallas, Texas. 
As Mexican-Americans began to rescue their legends and their roots, the story of Richie Valens was brought to life in 1987 in a film that was directed by Luis Valdez, recognized as the father of Chicano theater and cinema, starring Lou Diamond Phillips' La Bamba with a critical and commercial success. The title song, performed by East Los Angeles' Los Lobos, became a number one hit in both the U.S. and the U.K. Richie Valens was only 17 when he died, but his legacy was based primarily on Donna and La Bamba, which was popular with the teens. Oh, and I should say that Donna is an actual person. You did mention that earlier. Yeah, she's an actual person. She's portrayed in the film, and her name's Donna Ludwig, and she went on to be named Donna Fox. So if you heard the the, the, the name Donna Fox earlier, that's who I was in reference to. So they dated for a while and I think that they broke up just before Valens died. Makes sense. I don't know much about their relationship, but Donna is a real person. And so at the time of his death, his hard rocking style was being phased out in favor of teens like Fabian and Frankie Avalon. Valens imagined as an early Latino rocker had lasted and inspired Los Lobos, Freddie Fender, the Midniners, Trini Lopez, Sunny and the Sun Glows. La Bamba had become the model for the Isley Brothers' 1961 hit, Twist and Shout. Valens also inspired The Rascals, Bob Dylan, and R.E.M. His untrained voice and guitar style was the basis for the garage band revolution of the early 1960s. In 1987, he was the subject of the movie La Bamba and received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1990. He only put out three records. Richie Valens in March 1959, and that had Come On, Let's Go, Donna, and La Bamba, Richie, which was in October of 1959, which had Cry, Cry, Cry. And then what I talked about before was Bob Keane recorded his school performance. Right. And that was the concert at Pacoima Junior High, which is Come On, Let's Go, Donna's Summertime Blues, From Beyond, La Bamba, Rock Little Darling, and Let's Rock and Roll. As TJ likes to say, fun facts. Yay! Like I was saying, Donna was named after his high school sweetheart, Donna Ludwig. He was one of the performers that was featured on a set of stamps of rock and blues legends issued by the U.S. Postal Service in June 1993. He was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001. And despite having his most popular hit with La Bamba, an adaptation of a Mexican folk song, he did not speak Spanish. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I had to pause for a minute like, what? All Which right. is crazy because he had the Latin roots and he was living in Southern California. It's and not so crazy. Honestly, there's quite a bit. Um, you see this a lot, especially around that era and through to like current where a lot of parents like immigrant parents or that had immigrant parents because of the climate at the time, they didn't teach their children their native languages. They they made sure that they were english speaking first and foremost to give them better opportunities and so that they didn't have as much prejudice yeah it was there was a scene in american horror story season six my roanoke nightmare laugh if you want yes i'm a nerd that and you see it in movies all the time but there's a specific scene where a korean family moves into the house and they insist on speaking english within the household right so that they don't face that kind of prejudice. Right. He is mentioned in the song, Life is a Rock, But the Radio Rolled Me by Reunion. Following his untimely death, he was interred at the San Fernando Mission Cemetery in Mission Hills, California. 
fun fact about LD, I was actually going to take a small field trip to the cemetery so that I could pay my respects to Richie Valens. And he's also interred with people like Chuck Connors. And there was Jane Wyatt's buried there. Ed Bagley's buried there. And William Frawley. Henry Corden is buried there. And he voiced Fred Flintstone. Oh, okay. And I do believe that Bob Hope is buried there as well. So it's not as prolific as like the Hollywood Forever Cemetery or Forest Lawn Cemetery, which call me weird, but I do like going to Forest Lawn and just walking around. It's very peaceful and very respectful. And that's kind of where I go to clear my head. That is kind of weird, though. (laughs) You just go wander in a cemetery to clear your head. Because it's quiet. (laughs) It's super quiet there. And it's... Well, I would hope so. Peaceful and... People show respect and there aren't any like people screaming or having parties. And and sometimes I just, I need to go where it's quiet. And Joshua Tree is too far away (laughs) for me just to be like, I'm just going to drive out to the middle of the desert and just not hear anyone (laughs) when it's like a 25 minute ride to Forest Lawn. (laughs) Fair enough. In his short time, Richie actually received many awards and honors, including being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Rockabilly Hall of Fame, the Doo-Wop Hall of Fame, and the Native American Music Hall of Fame. And he was also in the Iowa Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He is included on the Wall of Fame at the Guitar Center in Hollywood, and he had the postage stamp. And he was nominated for a Grammy for Songwriter of the Year for writing La Bamba. I don't think he won. He has been credited with 72 movies and TV shows, music-wise, including Grease, The Right Stuff, my favorite, well, my husband's, one of my husband's favorite movies, The Money Pit. (laughs) He says that I'm Shelley Long and that he's Tom Hanks, and I fully agree. Okay. (laughs) Hill Street Blues, Quantum Leap, and Beverly Hills 90210, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So here's two facts about the film La Bamba, and one of these will break your heart. According to Lou Diamond Phillips in the VH1 documentary Behind the Music, The Day the Music Died, Richie Valens' sister was on the set of the day they shot the coin toss scene. When Richie wins the chance to fly on the plane with Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper, Richie's sister began to weep uncontrollably during the shoot. When Phillips came over to console her, she hugged him and sobbed, Why, Richie, why did you get on that plane? Aww. (sighs) Poor sissy. And I was, um... I actually watched the the final scene from that film and all the comments were just like people saying, why didn't you pick Tails? Just imagine what could have happened if he picked Tails. Unfortunately, that plane was going down anyways and whoever was on it was also going to be tragically killed. So, yeah, you know, we lost, well, it's the day the music died. I mean, we lost a lot of... Great talent that day. Yeah. And so I don't end on like a completely downer note. La Bamba was selected in 2017 for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Well, there you and go. that is part one of our three-part series of The Day the Music Died. And I don't know if you could tell, but I'm trying to keep it together. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. Like, I'm not going to cry at this. I'm not going to cry at this. I'm not going to cry at this. I'll cry later. Exactly. This hits me really hard because, number one, he was so young. Number two, I completely identify with his fear of flying. And number three, we lost so much talent that day that it it strikes a chord with me. And it just, it, it, it hits me hard. 
Right. Also, it's like my personal nightmare. So Well, yeah. <laughs> so this is this is going to be a really hard month because literally all the episodes are going to end the same. Everyone yep. in this dies in that plane crash. And so yep. I've just got to like for this month, I just got to like hyper focus and keep it together because this is my greatest fear. So so thank you guys so much for checking this episode out. Check us out next week when we're doing the Big Bopper. Hey, love Chantilly Lace. So if you love us and you want to give us money, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check us out on Twitter at rock and roll LT uh, on our Facebook page at rock and roll heaven pod. Instagram, Rock and Roll Heaven LT, still not saying our website, or you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And if I said those too fast, you can check it out in the show notes. We list everything down there. So uh, we will see you guys next time, next week, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Next week. And keep rocking in the free world. That's really all I have to say, TJ. Yeah. I don't want to fly. That's fine. Okay. Good. All right. You don't have to today. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 